Okay. All right. So, um, so yes. Yeah, so again, so my name is Ravi Chandra. I'm a psychiatrist and writer here in San Francisco. I'm also the secretary of the Brown Club of Greater San Francisco, and uh, and I'm so pleased to uh, have Professor Rose McDermott here tonight. Um, and uh, Professor uh, McDermott is the David and Mariana Fisher University Professor of International Relations at Brown University and also a fellow in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And she works in the areas of political psychology. And uh, as you know, tonight, um, her topic is leadership and the strategic emotional manipulation of political identity. And so I'm really looking forward to this. This is uh, the day after Super Tuesday. And uh, so I'm sure we have a lot of uh, political uh, 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 thoughts in our minds. So we'll, we'll look forward to hearing more. All right. So. Okay, so shall I do the share screen? Now? Yes, yes, go right ahead. So let me see if I can make this work right. Uh, um, oh, okay. Well, let me see, where's my. I thought that I had the PowerPoint up. Can you see that? Yes, yes. yes. Okay, great. Um, so thank you all very much for coming. I'm really sorry I'm not there in person. I appreciate your. Accommodation. So, um, this work I've been working on and off for quite a while. I've done um, quite a bit of work on leadership, including a book on presidential illness. And um, so, I'm happy to talk in the QA afterwards about um, Trump. And this is not especially about the current electoral contest between the president and the Democrats, but um, it can speak to it as well as broader issues. So, um, the, the basic argument that I make in a lot of this work is that how leaders get a lot of their followers to follow them and to do things that might not necessarily be in the followers' best interest, but it is in the interest of the leader. So basically getting people to, for example, vote against their economic best, in, you know, um, best interest and so on is by manipulating both identity and emotion. Um, and so social identity, and I'll talk about this more as we go along, is about leaders creating um, a sense of boundaries around what's an in-group and what's an out-group. And that can change dramatically over periods of time, so that what constitutes a notion of American is very different in, say, 1900 than in 2000. And what is an in-group or an out-group um, gets affected by leaders' definitions of, okay, this is one of us and that's one of you. Um, and part of the way they do that is by manipulating emotions, um, most especially fear, um, but also anger, and anger in the form of outrage. And um, manipulating these emotions uh, accomplishes two goals. The first thing it does is make the in-group solidify. Um, we're all in this together. We're going to fight against those awful people who are trying to hurt us or take away our resources or um, somehow uh, otherwise uh, harm us. And it also gets that group to then be willing to defend against members of the out-group who they believe will hurt them or discriminate against them uh, in some other fashion. So it allows the leader to get the group solidly together and behind them, even if the group has other things that might otherwise divide them, or has people who might not otherwise follow the leader. Um, okay, so 
just step back a minute and talk a little bit, and this is very simplistic, so we can talk more depending on your interest, about why emotion this way and what's so important. Um, and um, emotion accomplishes lots of goals. Um, and the first is it helps us figure out our place in the world in a pretty fast and efficient way. So that we don't have to sit down and do some kind of you know, statistical analysis of all the information we get to decide you know, how to act and who to like and all these things we need to make decisions about you know, hundreds of times a day. Um, and it very efficiently tells us where to allocate our resources. That we love our children, we love our parents, and so we're going to put a lot of resources into them. Um, but we're not going to necessarily put as many resources into our co-workers, even if we like them. Um, and we'll certainly use resources against people that we don't like or that we think might hurt us. Um, and emotion also allows us to communicate. Um, the most, this is a big baby cry, right? Like if you've ever been on an airplane with a baby crying, it drives you crazy and you want them to stop the baby from crying. Partly because that's a form of communication. It tells us this child is in distress and we're supposed to do something to end that distress or to help the child. It communicates um, a whole raft of um, needs and goals and emotions without even having to use words. Um, and we can see that even in animals, like pets can have emotion, dogs and cats that we love, and they communicate all kinds of things without necessarily saying anything, but we can have deep emotional bonds with them. So that's part of what, why emotion is such an efficient way for leaders to manipulate uh, followers toward particular political goals. Um, and this happens through the way that emotion can also influence decision making. Um, and it does this in a bunch of ways. And my first point is just that, you know, in the olden days, there used to be a lot of stuff in political science about how what really matters is if it's a positive emotion or a negative emotion. And I think it's really clear that uh, more recent work, which has blossomed in the last 15 years, on emotion and psychology says, no, you know, the specific emotion matters. Anger is going to produce different emotions than fear. And that's going to produce different emotions than happiness. Um, and that's why leaders can use specific emotions in strategic ways to accomplish very particular goals. Um, and one of the most interesting things in this literature really looks at gender differences and how men and women respond differentially on average, right? Not everybody all the time, but on average. So that when you have threat, women are much more likely to become fearful, and men are much more likely to become angry. And that has sort of downstream consequences for behavior, and also for beliefs about how willing you are to take risks, how willing you are to antagonize an enemy, um, and so on. And I think also helps explain a lot about uh, the gender gap that we see in voting and the way that um, in the 2016 election and now in this coming election, a really important swing vote turns out to be white, college-educated women who are suburban. Um, and that's, that's partly because of this particular way that that difference plays out, both in emotion and in identity and in decision making. Um, and it can affect content, 
what comes up in memory? So we have, you know, if we're unhappy, it's easy to remember bad things that happened to us. Then if we're happy, it's easy to remember things that made us happy, and so on. Um, and again, the issue about risk is that people who are angry are much more optimistic about their likelihood of being victorious in a fight. And so it makes them much more likely to take risks than people who are fearful who, when presented with a threat or a risk, just want to withdraw. They want to, you know, they are often paralyzed or they might go and hide. It's a very, very different kind of behavioral response to risk. Um, and the last uh, aspect of how emotion can affect decision making, I mean, it can affect you before the decision, but also after the decision, is that it really works efficiently to focus your attention on some things to the exclusion of other things. Um, and how much you're actually going to think things through. So a lot of you are probably really well aware of the Daniel Kahneman work, the type 1 and type 2 processing. Amos Tversky was actually one of my dissertation advisors. And a lot of this work speaks to the, the fact that when you have an intuition to make you work really quickly um, and easily and efficiently most of the time, it can also lead to really systematic and predictable kinds of bias. But by and large, it's much more efficient than sitting down and thinking through the pros and cons in a deep way about all the options that you have in a given decision. Um, okay. So now to go back to the issue of identity, right? So you have the issue of emotion, and then you have the issue of identity. And one of the things that's interesting about identity is that it actually is pretty fungible, right? So we can uh, identify ourselves in certain ways, we can identify other people in certain ways. Um, and we categorize ourselves and we categorize others in all kinds of ways, according to gender, race, age, uh, income, um, education, uh, sexuality, religion, all kinds of things that we say, okay, I am this thing, and you are that thing. Um, but oftentimes, people strategically pick identities that allow them to self-enhance, right? To feel good about themselves, to maximize their sense of status and power in the world, both to meet internal needs for self-esteem, but also to create communities that allow them to protect themselves against others who might be against them. What's interesting about that is notions of identity really change. So we think, oh, I can't change my identity about race. But the, how important race is as an element of identity has changed dramatically back and forth in American history for 200 years, right? So after the First World War, everybody entered who was drafted in to fight as Italian-Americans and Irish-Americans and other kinds of hyphenated Americans. And then they all fought together, and they came out, and they just self-identified as American. They sort of dropped the hyphen, and the ethnic aspect of it really um, got dropped in favor of the larger identity because they had all been fighting and believing together. Um, but then, you know, other elements come back in as status, power, and other forms of inequality enter, and people decide again that they're going to categorize themselves according to different um, uh, aspects of their identity. And leaders can take advantage of this. They can use it strategically precisely because it is so fungible. 
Um, and this allows them to set the agenda, the agenda to say, it really matters what your race is, or it really matters what your gender is, or it really matters what your age is. You see tons of this in the current election, right? So, like, African Americans are supporting um, Joe Biden, and that's why everyone's getting behind Joe Biden. And today I really had to laugh because I powered Dean on the radio and he was talking about like why Bernie didn't do so well. And he's like scratching his head and he's like, I just don't understand, you know, why young people didn't come out to vote. And it's like, well, it used to be having the DNC, you should remember the fact that young people never vote. I mean, it was 4% of 18 to 25 year olds who voted in 2016. If you expected them to vote, you're an idiot, but that's on you, right? Um, but there's ways in which um, people get divided up and the boundaries of that identity get defined by the leader. You can see Trump does this all the time, right? Like, he does it in these very subtle ways, especially around race, where he communicates you know, a particular kind of notion of white supremacy, where he might not completely come out and say it um, explicitly, but he communicates it in a way that his group members absolutely he's talking about. But the liminal boundaries of that, like what constitutes one group versus another group, can get contested, right? And where you see the contestation most pronounced nowadays is around gender, right? Especially with transgender people, like what constitutes female, what constitutes male, what constitutes gender at all, you know? Is it trans is one thing and non-binary is another, and you know, how do we think through those things? And those boundaries become sites of contestation, not just around the issue, in this case gender, but around a much broader political discourse about who's an input member, who's acceptable, who's going to be included, and who's going to be excluded because it's that person to the other. Um, and leaders can very clearly draw those boundaries and say, okay, if you're this, you're allowed to be part of the in group, but if you're that, you have to be on the out. Um, and the interesting thing about this is it's not all on the leader, it's also on the followers. There's this reciprocal understanding, reciprocal attraction, however you want to think about it, where the followers agree, right? They have to agree that this is hmm, uh, a definition that they're going to go along with, um, and that it's going to help establish um, community. And that's the benefit the followers get. Followers get community. They get a sense of, I'm not alone. I have friends who share my values. I'm willing to overlook differences because we all share these central beliefs or these central values. Um, and that's the benefit. The benefit that leaders get is get people to give them policies that basically can benefit followers, but it can also just benefit the leaders. Um, that's why these identities allow leaders to be who they are. Because they can get, for example, you see this in the Republican Party a lot, where people um, will get four followers, people who are economically disadvantaged, to follow a series of policy prescriptions and vote for a series of policy prescriptions that really hurt them economically because they're offered in exchange a social identity that makes them feel good about themselves. Oh, you're, you're better than other people because you're white. Or you're better than other people because you're straight. Or you're better than other people because you're male. Or whatever it happens to be. And that um, benefit of social status 
Um, especially when people aren't necessarily educated to think about the ways that policies affect their own lives. Get, get leaders to be able to have followers vote against their own economic self-interest because they get a social benefit out of it. Um, and, you know, this is easiest when things are uncertain. And there's a lot of ambiguity. You can see a lot of it in the you know, stuff about the virus now in public policy. When people don't know what to do, and they look to leadership direction and for clarity, and that leadership uh, is either untrustworthy or um, absent, then you see people uh, either panicking or reverting to their kind of tribal identities. Um, and you see this in all parts of the world. It's not just about the disease and viruses and things like that. But you see all kinds of conflict situations where, like in Afghanistan, if people don't trust the government, they don't like the government, they're going to revert to their kin. They're going to revert to their tribal network because that's the group they trust to take care of them under conditions of risk and under conditions of threat. Um, and what do we think? about our leader is successful or not. And here by successful, I mean, can they garner a lot of support? Not that they're effective necessarily in having policies that benefit the majority of the people, but just do they get elected? Can they stay in power? A lot of it depends on their ability to create this cohesive follower group around a particular kind of social identity. To say, okay, these are my people, you know, you have to follow me, because if you don't, the other group is going to hurt you. They're going to come after you. They're going to somehow take away your privileges, your rights, your benefits. And so you better stay with me, or you're going to be hurt. And I'm going to project that identity. Um, sometimes it's projected physically by the way they look, the way they dress, the way they talk. But sometimes it's also about delivering particular kinds of benefits, like a Supreme Court seat, or a particular policy on, say, abortion that everybody um, in, in group likes and everybody in the outbreak hates, or whatever it happens to be. And again, the benefit for followers is they get to have a cohesive community. They don't have to feel so alone. And that's important for people because we're socially animals, right? So um, a lot of how this gets communicated by leaders is public performance. And we're all well aware of this. You know, Trump has rallies for 15 or 70,000 people. You know, you saw a lot of the speeches that Biden and Bernie have been given. And a lot of it is to say, you know, join with us, right? And you guys who are considered, who aren't sure whether to be with me or against me, see how many followers I have. If you join with me, I'm much more likely to win. And so you want to be on the winning team. So you should join me because you want to be a winner, right? You don't want to be with that group that doesn't have very many people. And you saw a lot of that with everybody co-Biden, right? Clover Sharp on drops out, Steyer drives out, Buttigieg drops out, you know, Federal War endorses him. And you see this incredible consolidation that basically says, okay, we need all these fencers to get together and join our team because size wins, right? And you can think about this as like mentally, a psychology is an evolutionary psychology, right? Historically, before we have weapons, if you're going to fight with another group, the group that's going to win is the larger group. 
it's the group that can manage to strategically come up with surprise. Um, and so you're basically saying, yeah, you don't want to be left out in the cold on your own. You want to be with us. And then we're going to deliver these values that you want, this social outcome that you want. Um, and you're not just going to get this large group, this large community that makes you feel good about yourself. You're all also going to get to feel good about yourself because you think the leader is great, and you're going to bask in that leader's glory. You're going to identify with that person, and you're going to spend a lot of time talking about how bad the opposition is. Um, so again, part of how leaders do this is through emotional persuasion. They say, okay, you know, you used to think that this identity that didn't matter, now it really matters, right? So it's not just that you're, you know, this particular race or this particular uh, age or this particular gender, it matters that you're a Republican or it matters that you're a Democrat, that you have this um, ideology that becomes an identity in and of itself. And I'm going to get you to join the back of the best fence because if you don't, really bad stuff is going to happen to you. And I'm going to tell you what that really bad stuff is by either noticing or manufacturing outrages. To say, this horrible thing that this group did to, to other people, they're going to do to you unless you join with us. And this allows the in-group to be able to cooperate with each other, to overcome whatever internal divisions they have on other grounds, to get men and women to cooperate, to get blacks and whites to cooperate, whatever it is, because you share this, this uh, hostility to your opposition. And then you become a much more efficient group in being able to have effective conflict, effective fighting against the outcome. So when we talk about outrages, what leaders are really trying to do is create what we call amplification coalitions. Meaning you amplify your group, you try to make it bigger, but you need it to be effective. So all leaders have this central conundrum in their follower, creating their groups, that's really difficult to negotiate. If the group is too small, they're going to lose. Their goals fights against larger groups. And if they're too large, there's going to be internal divisions. You saw this in the women's movement. It was really interesting. You know, the day after the uh, Trump inauguration, there were like a million women out on the ball, and they were all just women together, and they were opposing Trump. And within a year, you saw all these internal divisions that black women and white women were getting along, and straight women and gay women weren't getting along, and trans women and biological women weren't getting along. And so, you know, you had internal divisions that pulled the group apart, and so they weren't able to effectively fight against their opposition because they just fell prey to fighting amongst each other. That's actually one of the ways that opposition can effectively divide um, their opponents. You find any internal divisions, you heat them up, you exploit them, you do whatever you can to cause internal divisions, because then the resulting group isn't cohesive enough to win against you. Um, so you have these two challenges. You want people to cooperate in our in-group, to get along with each other, and you want them to fight effectively against the outcome. But those things have to exist simultaneously, and it's really hard. 
because it's really easy for the in-group to start fighting against each other, and it's also easy for them to start cooperating with the opposition if the opposition offers them enough benefits and says, you know, I'm going to come after you, I'm going to divide and conquer you, I'm going to coach the fencers and bring them to my side by giving them benefits. Money, territory, mates, uh, food, you know, whatever it is. Um, and a lot of what they give when they don't have money, when they don't have the resources is status. To say, okay, you've joined with us, you're going to be an amazing person. You're going to be special in this way that nobody has understood how special you are. And a lot of terrorist recruitment revolves around these status issues. You're not sufficiently appreciated in your community, you're a minority, you know, you're not understood, you're not seen, you're not heard. Come to us, and we'll be powerful, we'll give you weapons, we'll give you, you know, mates, we'll have, give you lots of friends, you're going to have a better life. So what's being offered in many cases is not material resources, but much, much, much important social resources. Um, and that's what leaders can exploit. They can mobilize their followers by creating a new identity, by saying, this thing that you thought was a group, I'm going to create a group out of nothing. I'm going to tell you about the pieces of some identity you never thought about before. Got a whole you together and overcome whatever kinds of divisions and opposition you have within each other. And I'm going to define what the boundary is, and I'm going to tell you why this identity has a meaning. And whenever you think to leave me, I'm going to tell you how much worse it is on the other side, because the other side's going to threaten you, it's going to pose risks, it's going to make your life a lot worse. You have to join with me to fight against them in order to solidify your benefits, your own resources, the most important of which is this group identity. And the easiest way to do that is not to give people 18 points of policy, right? That was Hillary's big mistake. Let me tell you the 18 points of policy, and each point has three subpoints and so on. You know, uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, suffers from a bit of this as well. Use something much more efficient. Efficient and effective. Use emotion. Make people scared. Make them angry, piss them off, make them happy. It's usually hard to do it with a positive emotion, but Obama did it with hope, right? You remember, it's not a hope and change. Um, so it doesn't have to be a negative emotion, but you want it to be an emotion because it's simple, it's effective, it can mean different things to different people in a way that still mobilizes them and supporting you, overcomes internal divisions, but doesn't make people squabbling about specific things that don't work for them. Um, and basically what you're saying is, you want to join with me, because if you don't, the other group, the them, the out group, they don't really care about you. They don't value your welfare. They're not going to take care of you. And if you don't join with me, this current outrage, this current horrible way that they treat you, will continue, it will get worse, they'll come after you, it's going to be terrible.
And that's important because it serves as um, a coordination point around which everybody can rally around the flag and say, yes, this is my group. I'm going to, you know, put the flag and join with you to make sure that the other group doesn't take away something I really value. Um, and because of stuff through emotions, through anger, through manipulated or real outrage, you can incite people who might otherwise be fence sitters not just to join your cause, but to actually do stuff. To donate money, to walk, you know, to go door to door, to um, operate on your behalf, maybe to fight for you, maybe to kill for you, maybe to die for you. Um, and the other two parts of that are what you want to do to exploit those processes in the other group. So you want to look at the outgroup, you want to look at the group hate, and you want to say, who in my group can be picked on? How can I divide and conquer that group so that those people who previously supported the opposition can now come to my side? Um, the, I can show them the ways that they can benefit by coming to my side. Um, and you also want to find spies in your own group. People that you think are being exploited by the opposition and who pretend to be on your side but are really working to undermine your cause. So, yeah, think about that. That's going to make you paranoid toward your in-group. It's going to make you, you know, um, exploited and toward your out-group. And it's going to lead you to manufacture outrages just for the sake of manufacturing outrages. And there's nobody who's better at this than Putin, right? That's what Putin does on all forms of social media, most exclusively Facebook, most extensively Facebook, but not only in Facebook. He doesn't really care what people think. He doesn't care right less you know, um, what it is, race, gender, guns, climate, whatever. He just wants to divide people. Because he knows that by dividing people, you weaken opposition. You don't have to be very strong to fight against a fractionated uh, group of opponents. Okay, so this is my uh, hopefully have a conversation with you, um, which uh, Robbie has kindly agreed to coordinate. Um, so, you know, I think part of the uh, part of the way that leaders can manipulate followers is not just by manipulating emotions like anger and fear, but by manipulating identity itself. By saying, "Oh, it matters that you're a woman. It matters that you're trans, or it matters that you're Muslim, or it matters that you're whatever affected your identity." can be used to pick you off to join a particular place. Um, and they're very adept at finding those allies and using emotion to mobilize it. Very, very effective leaders have been able to completely fracture the ideology by finding an issue that can cut through the middle of an electorate and realign a group. So you saw in the 1860 election where Abraham Lincoln was able to do that with the issue of slavery. Right? You saw it in the 1980 election when Reagan was able to do it with the issue of abortion. You saw it in the 1960 they were able to turn Republicans and Democrats in opposite directions around the issue of race. So a lot of that is about identifying fractures within the opposition you can exploit usually through a different definition of identity identifying an issue as an issue of affinity, 
and manipulating the emotion to get people to be on your side. And skilled leaders are able to figure out what those issues are, to manipulate them, to activate them emotionally in effective, efficient ways, and get their followers to engage in collective action on their behalf, maybe even for their own benefit, and even hurt the followers, the benefit that the followers get is community, right? So they get to be part of a group, so even if they're voting against their economic self-interest, they get status needs out, get status um, values out of it, and they can create an in-group that motivates them to do whatever the leader wants. And sometimes the leader is trying to help them, but lots of times the leader is trying to exploit them for their own personal benefit. Um, okay, so I'm going to stop there, and then um, I would love to have your thoughts and questions and reactions, and I'm sorry again if I'm not here in person because I know I'm a supporter. Okay, thank you. And maybe you could uh, uh, go off of sharing screen so we can just go back to seeing you. There we go. All right. Great. Great. Yes. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah. These are these lights lit. Yes. Okay. Is that a little better? So you, I'll play with them. So right. you can okay. so you can see your audience. <laughs> yeah. We'll so the problem I'm having is that when I um, you're tiny, I'm trying to get you to be big. Yeah, I can't, ma I can't make them any bigger unless they, they, could, they could come close and ask their questions directly to through the computer screen if, if they want to. So we I can try that. I want to make you guys big, and I can't seem to. Oh, there, that's perfect. Okay, you got it. Okay, okay, that better. Okay, well, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, uh, this is a, a wonderful lecture, and and I think um, it, it's kind of frightening. I think I think we're all aware that we're being influenced constantly. And, uh, and outright manipulated. Um, and so, uh, so I guess, you know, one question is, uh, uh, you know, what's your sense of the, the, the light side and the dark side of, of this kind of manipulation? And uh, maybe if you were a, uh, a policymaker, what, what kind of structures might you want to have in place so that we tend to uh, have a, a virtuous cycle uh, as opposed to uh, what we have right now, which is a melee and often very negative. Yeah, I, I mean, this is that if you have a leader that's beneficent, right, who actually has the um, values of the constituency in mind, you can accomplish amazing things, right? Like you can actually accomplish really positive goals for the entire group. And, you know, we have had leaders who've been able to do that, and that can be a really positive side. Um, and Richard Brandon has some very interesting work. He's an anthropologist at Harvard who shows that over time, um, what we've actually gotten is egalitarianism uh, in humans over time, precisely because when a leader exploits a constituency, the constituency tends to decapitate the leader. Sometimes that looks like assassination. In democracy, it can look like getting elect, you know, getting thrown out of office. But um, over time, you do get increased egalitarianism, more democracy, for example. Well, whether or not that'll it'll hold up is hard to tell. But you can actually see that in animals who are bred that way. There was a, a recent nature show that showed how if you breed, um, you know, foxes that are friendly across ten generations, they become more like a cat or a dog, right? They become much more docile. 
So it, I think that the main um, lesson in this is to have to think through institutions and structures that vet theater to be um, people who want to work on behalf of the community and not just themselves. So some of that may be things like conflict of interest laws and making sure that people can't, you know, the emoluments clause. You know, a lot of the things the framers and founders did, you know, unfortunately a lot of those things have been falling by the wayside because we thought we had institutions that supported them and it turned out it was norms and not institutions. And so they can get violated more easily than they But um, I think the other thing is to have it not just be a single leader, but to have a collective. Know, a group of people that represent different interests who work together um, rather than all the power in the hands of a single person. So, you know, some of the work that I'm doing, like, for example, nuclear power, there's a group of us working really hard to try and not have all the nuclear codes only in the hands of the president. Forget who the president is. I mean, it can be Nixon, it can be Clinton, it can be Obama, it can be Trump, but no one person should have complete and sole authority and control over weapons that are that destructive. You know, have it be some constellation of people that the chairman and joint chiefs of staff and the secretary of defense and, you know, um, the speaker of the house or something like that. We haven't gotten very far with it, but that's our goal. Um, and, you know, just trying to think about institutional ways to um, constrain leaders from exploiting our constituencies. I'm not sure. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I think a couple things caught my ear. Um, one is a vetting process. So that brings up the question. Someone like Donald Trump, for example. I mean, you know, uh, I think there were probably a lot of people early on in the Republican Party who did not want him to run or who wanted him to drop out and so forth. So, I mean, what would that look like in our democracy where anybody can run? And he obviously was able to attract a lot of emotional support. Um, and yet, you know, maybe there were things uh, about his uh, uh, character, his finances, his, uh, his kind of destructive nature that maybe uh, uh, other people would have said we don't want at the helm. Or, or cognitive ability even. I mean, you know, so exactly. I'm a psychiatrist. So, so right. I mean, so one of the vetting things that, that has been suggested is having a, a full psychiatric exam, you know. Um, so, yeah. So what other things? Yeah. Medical, there's been a number of proposals to every candidate. I mean, not just somebody who reaches the point of being a nominee has to have a medical exam that includes a cognitive exam um, before being sort of allowed to enter the fray. The problem is, is that there's a lot of controversy over who are the doctors who do that exam. Like, do you have three Republicans and three Democrats? You know, how is it that you do that? And one of the issues that kept coming up, which was interesting to me, was somebody who said, okay, let's say a woman wants to run for president. And let's say she's had an abortion. That's a medical part of her history that lots of people would say is completely irrelevant to her ability and willingness to run for office and to make effective decisions. But there's a bunch of other people that would say, oh, no, 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 that's really, really, really important. Um, that information needs to be in the public domain. And so part of it also rests on the confidentiality. If you did a vetting, would that information remain confidential so that only the doctors would vet it, or would it inevitably become public in a way that can hurt people politically, even if there's no medical reason for it, like an abortion? 
The other example is a male example, which is interesting. There was a candidate, presidential candidate in the last 20 years, who was missing a testicle. He had had testicular cancer, had the testicle removed, totally fine, no cancer, whatever. But would that information be revealed? Because, you know, then he was like, quote unquote, less than a man, right? And so there's these political issues that are coming royal with the issue of veteran. But still, I and a bunch of others believe that at a minimum, you should have a group of you know, professional physicians, however defined, who have a standard medical as well as psychiatric exam, without which people are not allowed to actually run. You know, it's been in and around the discourse for 20 some odd years, and sometimes goes farther and sometimes doesn't. Usually when you have a presidential candidate who has cancer like Songus and then would have died in office, or you have someone like when Hillary had her aneurysm. I thought there'd be more of a discussion when Bernie had his heart attack, but um, nobody seemed to care. And that's been fascinating to me because for somebody who's claimed the importance of transparency for 40 years, he's refusing to turn over his numbers. And that tells you it's bad. Right? And you don't need to know a lot, you just need to know a 78-year-old man who had two stents after a heart attack, and that tells you he's not likely to live through his first term should he be elected. And think about the worst-case scenario. He's the nominee, and he drops at it, which is the nominee election. That hands it to Donald Trump, right? So, you know, you need to think about those other aspects. And you know, people have to decide how important they think it is, and I don't think they always think of it. Thank you. I think I'm going to turn it over to the audience. I have lots of more questions, but but I'll turn it over to the audience. Does anybody have something uh, ready to go that they're wondering about? Yes, why don't you speak up or come up? Uh, yeah. yeah, I'd like to follow up on the vetting idea. Um, a lot of the emotions that you discussed um, are not only fluid, but ethereal and kind of nebulous, and, and I was wondering if instead of betting the political leader's competency or solid, solidness, that, that one could vet the emotions which are uh, being used to manipulate uh, the larger population. Could you hear that? Uh, to vet so, um, yeah, part of it, got a little, um, um, uh, digitized, but um, can I ask you what you mean about how you vet the emotion? Like, do you have an idea about what that would look like, or? Um, well, I'm just, uh, I'm trying to figure out what these white men who are supporting Trump are getting all excited about or angry about. It seems like, I don't understand it, and it's, it's they think they're going to lose their shitty job, like uh, they think they're not going to be no, able to repair worried, their car. They're about, yeah, they're worried about losing their social stats. So one of the things that's fascinating is there's this narrative that who voted for Trump were white working class men. Um, the average income in a county that supported Trump in 2016 was $75,000. Okay? That means it's not the poor people's average for some reason. What's the best predictor? Racist attitudes. 
So what's happening is it's people who are feeling socially threatened about their relative social status. So yes, I have a shitty job as a coal miner in West Virginia, um, and I don't want to move to Kansas where I can get a better job as a nurse because being a nurse is women's work, and no one will marry me and because I don't have a good job. And so my social fabric has completely disintegrated, and I'm an opioid addict, but I'm going to support Donald Trump because at least I'm better than the black Right? And then when you take that away, when you take that relative social position away, that's what the threat is. Does but, that make sense? Yeah, but why don't we say you're delusional that you really don't have social status? You're I'm sorry, I couldn't hear the last part. You're on opioids, so you're, you're, you're high already. You're, you're, a vetting process should make it clear to that racist that they're wrong. Well. So sorry, I think he was suggesting would could there be a vetting process for voters uh, to or, or some in, a way to inform them that they're, they're they have mistaken ideas. Yeah, like, <laughs> tried to vet voters in the past, it's been things like poll exams, right? Like you do these um, uh, tests to see whether or not a voter is competent to vote. And they were really prevalent um, in the South after the Civil War. And I have to say, I took one of those polling tests that was a start the South after the Civil War. And I'm a PhD in political science from Stanford. And I only got two of the three questions right. I mean, it's a hard test, right? So they're designed to make people fail. And so the reason they're designed to make people fail is they administer it to black people but not white people. So, you know, stupid white people can vote and, and you know, smart black people can't or whatever it is. But the question is, who designs that test? And the way the founders did it, it also had some bias, right? You had to be landed, a landed man. So it wasn't just around gender and it wasn't just around race. But you had to be a landowner. You had to be invested in the system. And we can all agree that that you know, democratic system, one person, one vote, was overly restrictive. But then when you end up with hyper-democracy where everyone can vote, even if they're severely mentally ill, even if they have no education, even if they have other things that we might not like, it's very important to know how to screen that out without it introducing a bias that is to the advantage of a political side on grounds of race or ideology or gender or something like that. And, and I mean, I agree with you. I just wish that I could come up with something like that. And it's hard to think about how you do it. All right, any other questions? Yes, uh, you and then yes. Um, is, is there a way to combat this? I mean, is there a way for a candidate to like that against another candidate who's doing this? Um, so my my quick and easy kind of odd solution is um, throw Zuckerberg in jail and break up Facebook. Yes! <laughs> I actually yes. think that that's a big part of what you need to do is regulate social media. Um, and it's really simple. Like The best analogy I can give you is television. Remember when television, you may not remember, but television used to be like a and there'd be ads, and sometimes it would be stuff you wanted, and sometimes it wouldn't, but a lot of it would suck. 
And the minute you made television stuff you paid for at $10.99 a month for Netflix, it's like this golden age of television where at any time of the night or day you can turn on amazing programs and TV is awesome because you're paying for it. Um, so why don't you make Facebook something you pay for? Three bucks a month, ten bucks a month. All of a sudden, all the problems go away. You don't have to worry about security. You don't have to worry about all these bots. And you have some control. And Zuckerberg is consciously not making a choice because he makes a lot more money by having more data. And nobody except him benefits. Um, and so I really believe social media companies need to be regulated like other media companies, like CBS, like the New York Times. Why is Facebook exempt from libel laws? The minute you actually apply libel laws on Facebook, oh, right? Like, but but Congress has been unwilling to do it. Gotta ask yourself why. Um, it's because they're benefit. Um, so yes, there's a way to combat it. The other way to combat it is, you know, Republicans have been underfunding education in most state systems for third year. And so when you underfund education, it means people actually don't learn enough about the civic system of government to understand how to participate, um, how to be able to determine what's fake and what's real the information they encounter, how to work effectively for social change, and importantly, how to align their own interests and goals with the policies put forward by candidates. This was a systematic strategy that the Republicans have done through state governments, it's not at a federal level, for 30 years. To break the back of the labor unions, and breaking the back of the labor unions is exactly what the elected Trump does succeed. Because, you know, Hillary should have gone to Michigan, but leaving that aside, um, and underfunding education. It didn't take a lot, it just took 30 years. Um, yeah, I agree with all that, but I, I, Do a good job 
and inspiring the public with emotional messages that aren't really detailed policy plans that are intellectually fine if you have two PhDs, but if you never graduated from high school, don't make sense to you. Because remember, it's still less than a third of the country that went to college. Not graduated from college, went to college at all. So think about trying to how you get 70% of people who never went to college, most of those people never finished high school, to believe that it's in their best interest to vote for, you know, whoever. Trump's really good at that. Um, do we know of any shining example where somebody said, hey, that's manipulation, and the manipulated people were like, oh, that's manipulation. I'm going to check myself. <laughs> I wish I did. You find them and let me know. You know, part of the is the deep fakes are getting so good. I mean, I went to this talk a couple months ago at Stanford where this woman from Cornell was doing a project on this, and she had like a dozen deep fakes. And everyone in the room was like a professor at Stanford or graduate student or whatever, really smart, really sophisticated, really intelligent people. None of us got more than 50% of it correct. In both directions. We thought some stuff that was real was fake, and some stuff that was fake was real. Yes. So, so I really liked your point about social media. I was going down that same road because companies like Facebook make their money based on click-through and, and the, the whether it's fake content or real content, ultimately the, the things that create the most traffic for them are the things that create the outrage that you were talking about. But that outrage is almost always fed by anger. and. So it was interesting when you use the Obama example because he was very calm and collected. But like watching something like Joe Biden, you know, he's trying to paint this picture of the soul of the country and and sort of go down that hope path. But at the same time, he's trying to be angry, and, and all the Democrats were clearly kind of straddling that weird thing where you're going to get more energy out of people if they're angry, but you're trying to make them hopeful. And I'm just kind of curious, how do you straddle that properly? Um. So um, I lost part of the middle of what you were saying. So were you saying that who was making people angry? Well, I was saying that like Biden, for instance, has, oh, is yeah. kind of straddling this, like on one side of him, he's saying with the soul of the country and trying to make it this beautiful, almost like hope thing. But on the other side, he's trying to be angry about what, you know, where we are. And I feel like that, clouds the message somehow, and that the anger is actually going to win, just based on what I was saying about Facebook. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's hard to straddle that, you know, path and negotiate that space. And partly, I think you have to put it to your audience, right? So there's some audiences where it's better to use anger, other audiences where it's better to use hope. Like, hope is best with young people. The problem is young people don't vote. Um, so, you know, anger is better with using with an audience of men, you know, like you can think about how you target it to your audience, but I think that the best message that I see be most effective is, and most unifying is around defeating Trump, right? So it's a simple message, it can overcome a lot of internal divisions, has a lot of emotion behind it because people have a lot of hatred toward Trump, a lot of resentment, a lot of fear. Um, and those are the messages that tend to be, um, you know, simpler and have an emotional uh, tinge. I, I felt like since, yes, since the victory, 
Carolina, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? that could, could you repeat could you repeat that? That dropped out. Yes, in South Carolina, I felt like Biden's had a lot more confidence and a lot more energy, and he's done a better job at communicating. It's like because he's winning, he feels better. And so, you know, I think it actually, um, his hardest speaking issue is around the stutter. And so when he feels confident, he doesn't have to spend as much anxiety um, overcoming the stutter. And so you see a much more fluid speech in him. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's. Keeping a simple message to feed Trump um, is allows the internal divisions between the left and the moderate part of the party to come together because everybody can be on board about defeating Trump. That said, there's a ton of Bernie supporters that will not support anybody but Bernie, right? And you just have to know that. It's just interesting that a very high percentage of those are people who typically don't show up for the polls. So it's not like, you know, with Trump, his base of support is old white people, and they show up at the polls 60 to 70 percent. Like they show up, uh, and so you know that turnout is the key of every election. And he has a built-in base that's unemployed and retired, and so they have nothing better to do except they show up. Um, and it's a challenge. Um. Yeah. Anything else? Well, I. Uh, if there's not, maybe I can uh, have a question uh, in between as well. Um, so there's been a rise in individualism and narcissism, and uh, and and with narcissism, you are we. I think we're more prone to uh, anger and antagonism and so forth. So are we? Are we entering a totally new phase of American life where we've lost the civic engagement? Uh, we've lost a lot of this community bonding agent, and now we're just uh, we're, we're left with uh, with with much more uh, uh, antagonistic uh, emotion, more prone to it. And uh, or is this just? Do you think this is just a wave, and we're going to pass through this? What What's your sense? No, I mean I think that's an incredibly astute observation and question. And the data that I've seen is that narcissism has actually risen in society since around 2007, which is when iPhone came in, to widespread use. And so a lot of this really is Instagram and Snapchat and TikTok. And, you know, my life is great and your life sucks, even though I can't picture my life while it sucks. I'm thinking everybody else think it's great and vice versa. And that obsession with selfies and so on. And you know, Jean Twinch has done a lot of work on how this affects adolescents in particular and how it increases um, anxiety but not exclusively. So, you know, narcissism used to be one of these things where it was like 3% of the male population and 1% of the female population. The last averages I saw was 3% of the female population and 7% of the male population. That's a doubling in 20 years. That's just shocking. Um, and that's, that goes along with entitlement, lack of empathy, not treating other people well. And it does dissolve the social fabric in exactly the way that you say. And the challenge is that the way to overcome it is through social interactions, real social interactions, not mediated ones through electronics. But people get really addicted to their phones, and so they don't actually like have face-to-face conversations. I see this with my students all the time. They'll sit next to each other and text, and God forbid they actually talk to each other. Um, 
And the problem is that then what you get is much higher rates of uh, mental illness, too. And, and um, one of the things that's so interesting about that to me is the study that, you know, Facebook is really deep. And one of the things that happens with Facebook is they actually manipulate emotions, right? They go in and they create contagions, emotional contagions within their algorithms to study things for people who pay them money to do that. There's a lot of that. And every time you click terms and conditions, you agree to that and you don't know you're agreeing to it. But it's not just that they're selling your information that you like Charmin toilet paper over, you know, Scott toilet paper. They're actually manipulating you for people who are studying that to try and do things, not just for elections, but for all kinds of things, right? Um, and so my favorite study in this regard was they said, okay, what's the average number of confidants associated with the number of friends you have on Facebook, right? So confidant is somebody that you feel like you can tell any worst secret, worst flaw, your worst mistake, how many confidants do you have? And there's a complete linear relationship such that the more friends you have on Facebook, the fewer confidants you have. So, um, do you know what the average number of confidants for somebody on Facebook is? Average. 1.5. Anyone else want to take a guess? One. Zero? Zero? Well, the definition of confidant is how many people you've had a in-depth conversation with. Have, or have currently. Have currently. Okay. So zero. Have a friend in me. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, so uh, 
Uh, also, oh, I guess on that topic, uh, if you had three or four caveat voters, uh, warnings for the, uh, the voters, uh, in, in addition to quitting Facebook and social media, what else would you tell them to be on the lookout for? Um, because I think you get a lot of information that's not real and not representative of accurate information. Find a trusted, vetted news source. I don't care what it is, CNN, NPR, PBS, whatever it is, not Fox News, because they lie to us. And follow, follow it regularly. Um, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, whatever it is, doesn't have to be a lot, but one thing. Um, and the other is sit down seriously and ask yourself, what are the most important issues to you? Right? Is it guns? Is it climate? Is it nuclear weapons? Is it, you know, what is it? And then figure out on the issues you care about where each candidate stands so that you make sure that you're actually voting for somebody whose policies align with your values and not just with your amorphous sense of what your friends are doing or what you think like you want. Um, and we put cadre of close friends, and we do that before every election. We do a matrix, you know, the issues we care about. How where the kids stand, and you know, like I have a friend who really loves Bernie, and when she wrote down all her policies, it's like he does not align with the stuff I care about. I really care about foreign policy. He doesn't know shit about foreign policy. I really, really care about guns. He's bad on guns. I can't vote for this person I like the best because I need to vote for somebody whose policies align with mine. And I think it's hard for people to do, but it's important. Okay. Yes. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about identities that could potentially divide up the Trump coalition. Like, for example, I see the 99%, 1% rhetoric being like a way, one possible way to divide up the Trump coalition, but are there any other? Um, emotional-based identities that could split up. I'm sorry, you dropped out. Can you start again? Sure. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak about any identities that could help break up the existing Trump coalition, um, such as 99% uh, rhetoric, but anything else that would divide off subgroups from the existing Trump base. Um, so, the economic stuff for sure, like if you can get people to actually understand how bad the tax cut hurt poor people, um, you know, that there's a whole sequence of policies that were put into place that really hurt. Um, so the economic issues I think are important. The other are um, religious issues, and you've seen a little bit of the breaking off of the religious, the true evangelicals, who have to some degree started to break Away. They don't necessarily endorse the Democrats, for this man, who has sex with porn stars, who's paid off porn stars, who um, you know, has a potty mouth, who engages in these things that are really alien to my religious values. And you've seen that a little, not a lot, because then the Catherine Nathan is always on abortion. Um, but I have seen a bit, especially around the porn stars. Um, and, you know, I think. Other issue really that is not being exploited is this piece about patriotism and nationalism. Here's a man who sold us out to a foreign power. I mean, if Obama had done that, think about what would have happened in the Republican Party, 
right? So people who actually are deeply committed to the, the country, that is a constituency that you can move and that the Democrats have not made any attempt to shift what they should So, can you compare and contrast Bernie and um, and Biden in their strategies, and which are you feel are, are more effective in terms of leadership? Um, you know, the truth of the matter is, neither one of them is great, right? Um, you know, they're both better than Trump, in my opinion, but neither one of them as a leader is great. And um, part of the problem, and this is true of Trump as well, is they're old, right? And so you have an energy issue, just a sheer, flat-out, you know, cognitive capacity energy issue. Um, I think Bernie's real problem is that he yells. I mean, he only yells. He's angry all the time. He only has one emotion. He wants everybody else to only be angry all the time. Um, it's exhausting, right? Um, and and maybe no where we can get to, but it's all out of anger. It's not out of any kind of sense of inspiration or hope, which Obama offered. Um, the problem with Biden is he's just, you know, he, he has been lacking in a clear message and a clear vision, um, and he's been kind of low energy, right? Um, and so it's hard. Um, he's had a lot more energy since he's had confidence, and that may help. Um, you know, Trump is also somebody who's just like a lot of anger all the time, and it's extremely narcissistic anger. But somehow his base responds to it, you know. Um, they're all really old. And, you know, if you think about their um, life expectancy and their health situation, and I mean all three of them, right? None of them's in really great shape. Biden's had an aneurysm. Bernie's having a heart attack, you know, Trump eats like shit, never exercises, and, you know, gets about 100 pounds overweight. Um, they're all just not, you know, they're not, you think of as charismatic leaders. The problem is, is people that have put themselves forward, um, none of them are really an alpha, right? So you think about an alpha, it doesn't have to be male, but an alpha, you know, there's 12 really, really, when I was watching the 18 people who were running, it was a great cabinet, right? A cabinet you can see who the Secretary of Defense is going to be in, who the Secretary of State was going to be in, you know, housing and, and urban development, like, it's a fabulous candidate. The problem is, you don't have a president. Um, and, you know, Trump's the exact opposite, right? Like, he's big alpha, and he's got no betas. He's got no gammas at all. Um, and so you have a really ineffective um, cabinet. But the Democrats should have been able to match somebody better, and I don't know why they could the hold to run office, right? Who could take two years out of their life to run for office and basically have a public colonoscopy every day about every aspect of your life? Who wants that, right? Only a narcissist or a true altruist. Um, and the true altruist. You know, I think of somebody like, I thought of Andy in that way. He doesn't get very far, right? Um, did, so, you say, did you say yeah. Andrew Yang? Yeah. Did, oh, okay. I mean, I think he was in it for the country, for other people. I'm not saying, you know, I love all his policies, but I, do, I don't think he was in it for narcissistic reasons. 
Um, I could be wrong about that, but that was my impression, right? Um, but, you know, Tom Steyer, total narcissist, right? Like, oh! Um, so, you know, it's very, very difficult to think about who is not a narcissist who would be willing to put themselves in that position. Is there, um, just a kind of and part of it is a structural where you should change the election system so that you don't have two year presidential races. Sorry, you said uh, Yeah, I was just kind of following your thread there. If uh, the, the heir apparent for the political candidacy on the Democratic side were to pick an apt vice president that had that type of charisma that might offset. Um, you know, as part of a team, is there anyone out there in, in the world that you've seen in the past year that you think could amplify that? I think Biden will, Biden will choose either Stacey Abrams or Susan Rice. He's going to choose a couple. And I think it'll probably be Stacey Abrams, and she's very charismatic, right? Like, she is really charismatic. Susan Rice is really smart. I don't think she has the same level of charisma, but she has a a lot more experience. Um, either one of them fabulous, and then he'll get in and he'll put Lonnie Bonier on the court. You know, I mean, maybe not Lonnie, but somebody like Lonnie. You should put Lonnie on, she should be the most qualified. Um, but he understands that if he gets elected, it will be delivered by black women. Um, you know, because that's what happened in Alabama with the vote between Lonnie Moore and Doug Jones. You know, that was 90, 93% of black women showing up. And 98% of them voting for the Democratic candidate. They they understand where their butter's, you know, where their bread is buttered. And I think that's what he'll get. He knows that's what he'll get about. It'll alienate Trump's base, but they're calling me. Okay. Well, I think we could probably keep going. <laughs> well, I don't know. You could do a, a weekly uh, show on uh, on CNN. We could broadcast it right here if you'd be well, willing. I really appreciate it. You're very kind to let do that. I appreciate that. All of you should feel free to email me if you have other thoughts or questions. I'd love to hear your thoughts and reactions. This is ongoing work I do on narcissism and leadership and a number of these topics on emotion and decision making. So, you know, the, the Brown undergraduates are the smartest people on the planet even when they graduate. So I always love to hear your thoughts and ideas. And so please feel free. I'm really easy to find. Rosa underscore McDermott and And um, I really appreciate you coming. I really appreciate you letting me do it remotely. And I'm sorry I'm far. <laughs> Can I just say one thing? Um, yeah. My daughter, Emma Weisler, um, and you were very inspirational to her. Yeah, I remember her. She's great. Yeah, so she told me you have to go see Rose. So <laughs> that's why I'm here. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, um, say hi. Say hi to her for me. She's great. You should be very proud. I am. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much.